And those provocative passages always take you deep and then lead to just something wonderful. And what makes this passage provocative is that our Lord commands us to hate some people. Huh? The Lord commanding us to hate. In fact, the title is when Jesus commands us to hate. And if I don't have you on the hook, I don't know what's going to put you on the hook. We want to be obedient to the Lord. And here he clearly, in no uncertain terms, tells us in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and 26, that there is a time for hating. So let me read those three verses to you. We're just going to cover three verses today. It's important we get this one right. Luke chapter 14, beginning with the 25th verse. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There you have it. And maybe you've heard this passage before and you've looked up some commentary on it. And so maybe you know where this is going. For others, this is shocking to you that that's in the Bible. You're reading it two or three times to figure out, does that say what I think it says? Yes, it says what you think it says. But does it mean what you think it means? That's the question. So let's look a little more closely at this portion. Large crowds are following him. And Jesus understands that not all are following for the right reason. In fact, if there was a crowd, most of us would follow the crowd as well to find out what is going on, what's all the hubbub about. Oh, it's this Jesus. Oh, I've heard of this Jesus. Oh, maybe he'll do another miracle or maybe he'll get in another confrontation with the religious leaders. Maybe he's going to overthrow Rome. We've heard rumors of that. And yet he was preaching a gospel of repentance and many in the crowd were not interested in the repentance. A turning away from. And so, by this time in his ministry now, Jesus is turning to very provocative language to get your attention because that crowd mentality people are often tempted to not think straight to pause to process in fact next week as we continue in this passage he'll talk about counting the cost and when someone goes to build something they count the cost and make sure they understand what the cost will be This flies in the face of kind of the church growth movement of the 80s. Just pack the church with, by preaching to people's felt needs, just get them in here. 
Just get them in here. Just get the crowd in here. And here Jesus is doing the opposite. He's got the crowd and he's saying, hey, maybe not all of you should be following me. If you want to follow me, here's some things you need to do in this very provocative statement. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, that about covers the whole family. And I hope there isn't anyone in here who is like, okay, I got that. I mean, if, if that's you, we need to talk. <laughs> and yet at the same time, we teach that the Bible should be interpreted with a grammatical, historical, literal interpretation. When you get to hard passages, you must fight the temptation to immediately make it say what it's not saying so you'll be comfortable. Well, truly, Jesus wouldn't be calling us to hate our family, would he? And he says, indeed, you must even hate your own life, which there's a lot of that going around today. A lot of people saying they hate their life, can't stand my life, a lot of self-loathing, depression, suicidal thoughts, woe is me. And so maybe there's some people here today that say, well, I have the I hate my own life part down. He's probably not saying what you think he's saying here either. So let's get to the bottom of this without pulling any sleight of hand and making the text say something other than what it's actually saying. So little teaching on Bible interpretation. So you're reading your Bible, you come to this passage, you have this conundrum. Because from what you know about God and Jesus, whatever your Bible knowledge is, you, you're pretty sure he says not to hate people. And then here he's saying you must hate your family. Leviticus 19.17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Exodus 20.12, one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. doesn't say anything about hating them. In fact, hating them would seem to dishonor father and mother. And Jesus himself says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Remember that? The the world hates its enemies. The world will love people who love them. But Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies and pray for them. Do good to those who hate you. So is there a contradiction? Well, we know there's no contradictions in the Bible because it's written by one author. God is the author of Scripture through the human agents. We call it dual authorship. Yes, each man wrote the Bible as carried along by the Holy Spirit. All of God's Word is what? Inspired by God. God breathed. So one of our principles of Bible interpretation is that Scripture never contradicts Scripture. You just need to study more. 
Secondly, always use more clear scriptures to interpret less clear scriptures. This is a less clear scripture because it seems to fly in the face of what so many other scriptures command us to do. God is love. He wants us to love one another. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So as a, as a Bible interpreter, as a scholar, I'm now thinking, well, maybe the word hate, maybe there's other words in the original languages that mean hate, but there's only one word in the English that captures it, and it's hate. We know that's the case with the word love. You've got the agapao love. You have phileo, brotherly love. You have eros, romantic love. We only have one word for love in English, which is probably why we're very confused about love in our culture. So I brushed off my Hebrew a little better with the Greek. The word in the Greek is meseo, and it means to hate. <laughs> and everywhere it's used, it means to hate. So if there was another word that could kind of mean hate, but not really hate in the Greek, they would have used that word, but they used meseo. That got me thinking about, are there passages, other passages where God talks about hating something where we're pretty sure he doesn't literally mean to hate or to loathe? And immediately the, the passage about Esau, I've hated, but Jacob I've loved comes to mind. So, I looked that up in Romans. Paul uses the word meseo. Hmm. I was looking for another verb. So I looked in the Old Testament where God first talks about Esau and Jacob to find the Hebrew word for hate there. And then I went into what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament by rabbis who know Hebrew a lot better than I know. And so they needed to make a decision, what word in the Greek should we use to capture this word in the Hebrew? And so I'm like, I'm probably going to go to the Septuagint and find a different Greek word for hate. And you know what I found? They used maseo. Ah, So we move on to our next level of Bible interpretation, the grammatical aspect of language is that all language has figures of speech. The grammatical historical is the word hate used in a way that we don't use it in the English and that's where we find our solution. It's common Hebrew idiom to say, I love something and I love something else less. And to use the word hate for emphasis. Just to be provocative, to get your attention. God says, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Did he literally hate Esau? Well, in the sense that he chose Jacob. 
Now, we immediately want to say, well, there must have been something about Jacob that was lovable, and Esau was easy to hate. That's not the case. In fact, Jacob was a deceiver. He lied to his father with his mother's help. It's not that God prefers smooth-skinned men over hairy ones or those with the gift of administration over those who are hunter-gatherers. In God's great wisdom, for reasons we won't fully understand until glory, God chose Jacob to be in the line of patriarchs and not Esau. It's God's prerogative to choose. God chooses. And the way he communicated his choice to us is with this love-hate language. So there we have a case of the word hate being used in a way that we're not quite familiar with. Uh, Another passage we could look at. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped this slide. This is... Just some examples of the fact that the Hebrew word for hate uh, means hate in the way we think of it. Amos 5.15, hate evil, love good. It's not prefer uh, good a little bit more than evil. It's despise evil, love good. In fact, in Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth, I hate. There's another proverb, right? These things I hate, says the Lord. Six things I hate. Yes, seven I despise. Lying lips, etc., etc., etc. God says in the Old Testament, he hates divorce. It's not that he slightly prefers you stay married over divorce. He hates divorce. Divorce. So there's lots of things that we're to hate. But hating your family, that sounds contrary to some of other of God's more clear commandments. So we've got this Hebrew use of the word hate. And I I know we're looking at a Greek passage. By Hebrew, I mean culturally Culturally, the Hebrew people would use this love-hate language. Genesis 29.31. Remember Jacob and Leah and Rachel? Jacob loved Rachel. He was smitten with her. He wanted to marry Rachel. Rachel's father said, you work for me for seven years, and I'll give you my daughter. He didn't say, I'll give you Rachel. He said, I'll give you my daughter. And on the night of the wedding, Leah, wearing a thick veil, is married to Jacob, and they consummate the marriage that night. He wakes up in the morning. You're not Rachel. And he loves Rachel so much that even though he was deceived, he said, I will work for you seven more years. Now, I'm fairly certain that Jacob loved Leah 
and Rachel. But he loved, loved Rachel, and Leah knew it. He was smitten with Rachel. She had his heart. She captivated his heart. You know, probably if Leah confronted Jacob, he'd say, it's not you, it's me. I don't know why I don't have the same feelings for you as your sister. Jacob may have thought he loved both of his wives, but it was obvious to Leah and probably everyone else who he really loved. And so God inspires Moses to write these words. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. We have no other indication in the Scripture that it says Jacob hated Leah, that he yelled at her, that he he beat her, that he mistreated her. It's this love-hate language. He prefers Leah and he, or uh, Rachel. He prefers Rachel. He just does. I like the use of love-hate in Luke 16. We'll be getting there next year. <laughs> Don't worry, you're going home today by 12. <laughs> no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. This is done for effect because we deceive ourselves into thinking money won't get in the way of me serving God. In fact, the more of it I have, the more I could do for him. Right? And then we become obsessed with accumulating money and we don't realize we're serving money instead of God. The servant thinks he can serve both, but he is fooling himself in dishonoring God. Maybe Jacob thought he truly was loving both of his wives equally, fooling himself. You will love the one and hate the other. I don't hate Leah. It gets your attention, doesn't it? Gets your attention more than, well, you love one 100% and you love the other 98%. It's not true. And so to shine the light on that gap, they use love, hate. And if there was any doubt about it, the fact that the son that Jacob had with Rachel became his favorite son. And he showered love on his son Joseph at the expense of his other children to the point where they were exasperated. And uh, they truly hated Joseph. (laughs) That's hate in the traditional sense of the word. When you throw your brother into a pit and then sell him into slavery, pretty sure there's hatred going on there. So now we understand that hate 
as a Hebraicism can mean to prefer something less than something else, but not in the way we say, hey kids, we're going to ice cream. Chocolate or vanilla? I hate vanilla. Well, they're all out of chocolate. Well, okay. That's, that's preferring just a little less. So it falls short of despising and loathing, but it's stronger than, eh, I guess I'll go with chocolate. So then the question is, in what way does Jesus want us to hate our family members? Well, we get a little clue here from Jesus himself modeling what it looks like to hate your blood relatives in a way that is not sinful. To hate your blood relatives in a way that is not sinful. The Lord himself modeled this for us. Matthew twelve forty six. While he was still speaking to the people, so he's got a crowd, and he's speaking to the people, and the people are of his hometown, don't like what he has to say, and it's an honor-shame culture, and he's bringing dishonor on his family name, and they're embarrassed by Jesus, and they want him to just shut up and come home and go back to woodworking. His brothers did not believe in him at the time. It's really hard for me to tell exactly what Mary's attitude towards her son was. There's just not enough information, and I don't want to fill in the white spaces. She certainly knows, we could tell from the birth narrative, that she knew her son was going to be Savior. But we see at the miracle at Cana, when he changes water into wine, him telling his mother tersely, Woman? What does this have to do with me? He goes ahead and he works the miracle anyways, but there's a really awkward moment there where you're like, huh, mom wants him to do something. And he says, what does this have to do with me? There also is a really great Hebrew idiom. It's just kind of like a, Oh, I forget what the wording is. This is like Nathan's favorite. He's, he's nodding. Yeah. Ask Nathan after church. It's, it's like three or four short words that he says, but it takes us a whole sentence to translate it. I think it's like woman to you is to me. But it just really means, what, what does this have to do with me? Why are you dragging me into this? It's not my time. I'm God in human flesh. I don't do parlor tricks at weddings. They ran out of wine. That's their, that's their bad. Jesus isn't here to bail us out from party fouls. And so this is another one of these scenes where I'm like, so mom kind of gets thrown into the mix with the brothers. Hey, go get your brother. Bring him home. He's embarrassing us. Maybe she was concerned for his life. He's going to get himself killed. But Jesus says to the man, 
who brought the request, his own family didn't even come to get them himself because they didn't want to be associated with him. He replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Like, like saying, in this moment, not them. What did Jesus say to Peter? Peter, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Then I'm going to die on the cross. No, you won't, Lord. Get behind me, Satan. That's an example of Jesus loving Peter as precious as his own. And then in the same scene, hating him because he was not on the right agenda. That's what's going on here. Jesus' family was not about the kingdom of God here. They, they had their mind on earthly things. You're not my family then. Who is my family? And he stretches his hands to his disciples and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Because eternal family relationships trump biological family relationships. So we must not let unbelievers, even family, or family that are believers currently acting like unbelievers, stop us from following Christ. Here's another example. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father, which is a euphemism for wait for my father to die so I can bury him and get the inheritance. Right? You can connect the dots. I could be a lot more fruitful in the kingdom of God if I had my inheritance. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, which sounds callous, but Jesus knew this man's heart that he was more interested in his inheritance and in his money than in following Christ and that that inheritance would get in the way of him following Christ. You can be assured that if this money truly would have enhanced this man's walk with Christ, he would have said, yes, go bury your father and then come follow me. And we'll put that money to good kingdom use. Let the dead bury their own dead. Right, if I had to fill in the blanks here, I would say it was go home, tell your father about Jesus and that you're following Jesus. If he applauds you and wants to follow me as well, bring him along. If he says, I will disown you and you will lose everything if you follow Jesus... Leave him, follow me. That the, in that way, you're not contradicting the command to honor your father and your mother. And some of you, if not many of you, had to honor a father and mother who was not on board with your Christianity. Or maybe not on board with the seriousness with which you took your Christianity. And you had to figure out how to honor them 
but saying, I've got to move forward in my walk with the Lord. I cannot let a family member stop me from being obedient to the Lord. And so, in a sense, you loved the Lord and you hated family. Now, hatred of a sinful kind may have entered your heart. Mad at them for making my life so difficult and taking something that's precious to me and turning it into a source of contention. And I hope you've repented of of that kind of hatred. And that will happen. Jesus said, if you follow him, there will be persecutions. Not if, when. And we're fortunate, from a human perspective, that in our country those persecutions are often some angry looks, some ostracism, some awkward Thanksgiving dinners. Maybe for some of you, though, a job loss or loss of promotion. Maybe someone who was a boyfriend-girlfriend and you realize they, are, they're, they were just saying they followed Jesus. But when push came to shove, it was just to appease you. Unlike our brothers and sisters around the globe who literally could lose their lives for their faith. Certainly cut off from their family, from their social circles, from the business community. Some family may turn them into the authorities. And the most extreme family honor killings. Save our family's honor. We will kill our own child who's come to faith in Christ. That ought to tell us something about our hearts that all too often the case is that we could almost more easily deal with losing our life for our faith than losing our popularity for our faith. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, can think of a time when in some subtle or not so subtle way we denied Christ to avoid an awkward moment at work or the party or the family gathering. And there's, there's forgiveness and grace for us all. We must not let unbelievers, even family, stop us from following Christ. I wanted to give you a word of warning here. Um, the cults love to use this passage to brainwash adherence. You must hate your family if you really want to follow Christ. And the family, the, the, the Christians, and maybe even some unbelievers, but realize this person's in a cult, try to pull the person out of the cult, and the cult will point to this passage. You've got to hate your family. I also wanted to warn the narcissists among us 
which will probably fall on deaf ears, but I'm going to warn you anyways. That's one of the problems with narcissism is you don't listen and you don't think it applies to you. But every family maybe has that resident narcissist. And when the family tries to help him or her, this kind of passage emboldens them to, I got to follow Jesus. I don't care what you say. You're like, well, we're all following Jesus too. You're just making a jerk out of yourself. And they don't see it that way. All of you are wrong. And look, Jesus says, if I must, I must hate brother, sister, wife, children, etc., etc. That's not what the passage is teaching. It's talking about those scenarios where following Christ in a way that is gracious and humble and loving and winsome may still win you enemies. And you have a choice to make. Do I love God or do I, quote unquote, love man? Love in the sense of appeasing man, fear of man. Do I, do I privately follow God and publicly not so much so I can be accepted? Do not be deceived. You cannot serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. Even if you're deceiving yourself into thinking, no, I'm, I'm loving God and I'm loving these people. You may need some people you trust to help you evaluate the situation you're in. Get some help. How would you handle this? What do I do? What do I say? I want to honor the Lord. I want to follow Him. But there might be a cost. There's the Christian baker in Colorado who found out there was a cost. And that case is coming before the Supreme Court. Important case, we need to be in prayer for it. So much on the line about our freedom to worship, to believe what we want to believe and not be told what we have to believe and how we have to live out our belief. They're defending themselves in in two lines. One, the freedom of religion, but also the freedom of expression. The cake baker says, I am an artist. You can't make an artist do art that he or she doesn't want to do. And the secular world understands that because art is sacred in some sense to the secular world. So I think they're trying a two-pronged approach to their defense. But what I want you to think about from the case is here is a man, from best I can tell, from his own writing, from people who know him, that he's a very humble man. He wasn't obnoxious about it. He said, I I could sell you any other cake. I'll frost it, I'll ice it, I'll put all kinds of decorations. I just cannot put the writing on there that you want and I can't put two men as a cake topper. I I just can't do that. And I've got a friend down the road as a baker who would do it for you. 
And this community has been telling us we just want to be left alone. We just want to live our lives in peace. We just want the right to express our love. You don't have to celebrate it. You don't have to. Well, we're seeing that's not the case, is it? And so there's a cost. And I believe God will will bless this cake baker for standing firm, for loving what is true, what is good, what is lovely in the eyes of the Lord. And the persecution may not look like blessing to us, but God says it's, it's blessing. It is blessing. He will be blessed in this life and in the next for his faithfulness. This is the passage I really think will help you. John 7 It's the time of year where it's the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, down in Judea. He's up in Galilee in the north, and his brothers say, Hey, why don't you go preach down in Judea? Now, they're not being helpful. They're saying, Why don't you get out of Dodge and stop embarrassing the family? And they say, Hey, look. If this is really that important, shouldn't you, be go, shouldn't you do it down in Judea, you know, in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel? That was a little political. Uh, amen. Thank you. Thank you. I was looking for an amen. And Jesus says to them, because it says right here, even his brothers were, um, were not believing in him at this time. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here. Look, when I go down to Judea, I'll go down to Judea. I know they're going to kill me, but it's not my time. My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Your time for what? Your time to believe. It's always a good time to start believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But as it is, you're all worried about your lives if you believe in me. And he says, you don't need to worry. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. That's where the rubber hits the road. If you choose to follow Christ and live the way he has commanded us to live, the world will be reminded of its own evil and it will hate you. But he tells his brothers, look, it doesn't matter that you're related to me. You're not following me. The world won't care about you. They'll leave you alone. They can't hate you because you are of the world. You're one of their own. And so it's coming to that in our culture, beloved. If you choose to live in such a way that the world won't be bothered by you, I don't think you can honestly say I'm following Jesus. 
Now, that's not to say live in such a way that you're one of those pugnacious Christians that even Christians can't stand to be around. But if you're trying to make the world happy, the only way you're going to make them happy is to live in such a way that you don't remind them of their sin. You go with the flow. You don't take a stand. Unethical things going on at the job, well, it's just the job. I, don't, I would never do this at home, but it's part of the job, so, you know. Well, this is just the way we talk and joke at, out at the Institute. You don't understand. This is, this is the banter. And I won't get promoted if I don't do the banter. Oh, well. If you... God wants you to be promoted, you will get promoted. You don't need to play the world's games. Honesty, always the best policy. God's going to bring everything out into the light as we're seeing in our society. Lots of shining the light on evil deeds. The very people who said we're doing things the right way. We're the moral ones. We're the noble ones. Mike Pence not looking so crazy now. Hey, I just choose to honor my Lord by not having a lunch alone with another woman. That's good policy. The business world was enraged. What? You you can't trust yourself to keep your hands... Well, apparently, keeping your hands off of another man's wife seems to be more difficult than the world thought it was. So, well done, Mike Pence, for taking a stand for Christ in a small, quiet way. And look how unhappy the world was with them. Think of the temptation to go, okay, I guess if it's the right restaurant and it's a table in the middle and... No. That's his conviction. Paul says, do not violate your conscience. Do not violate your conscience. You must be willing to be shunned by the world, even family, for following Jesus. Because the world doesn't want to be reminded of its sin. That's, that's the point. Even family who may profess Christ, without naming any names, because I know this is taped, and family members of our own listen to the tape, I know we made some people uncomfortable with the seriousness of our walk. Oh, that's so nice. You guys are going back to church. That's what married couples do. And that's why we went back to church, not to seek the Lord, because married couples, that was the tradition in our... God had other plans for us. (laughs) Praise God. He found us. We were not looking for Him. And we were so smitten with him and his grace poured out on us on the cross that the way we chose to follow him 
may have been an affront to some people in our lives. That's a little extreme, don't you think? Jesus goes on to say, not only must you hate your family, but you must hate yourself. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Provocative language. We're so used to hearing about the cross, we don't see this as provocative, right? What's the analogy we've heard from the pulpit before? It'd be like telling someone, pick up your electric chair and carry it. This was before a cross was a fashion item. You, know, you watch TV and you see all these celebrities wearing crosses. Don't assume you're looking at a Christian. Jesus is not, though, talking about worldly self-hatred. It has become prevalent in our therapeutic, me-centered culture to hate, quote-unquote, oneself or cultivate self-loathing, which is actually sinful. Many people hate themselves in the sense that they think too highly of themselves and are convinced that they deserve a better life or more respect or more popularity or more money or whatever. And so the hate sounds like this. You know, it's not fair. I should be prettier. I should be more popular. I should, I should have a better job. I should have a nicer car. I should. That's not what comes out of their mouth, but that's the inner dialogue. And it sounds to them like, I hate myself. And if you have a biblical counselor who truly loves this person, they will eventually tell them after weeping with them and listening with them and building relationship, I need to tell you something. You don't hate yourself. Your problem is you love yourself too much. You are so absorbed with yourself and your life and your agenda, and your goals, and your dreams, and your, 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 you never once since we've been meeting have talked about anybody else's well-being. And if you'll lose your life, for Christ's sake, you'll find it. Well, how's that going to work? If if I'm not busy trying to find my life, how am I ever going to find it? Trusting in God even when his wisdom sounds counterintuitive, because what you've been trying ain't working. What I've been trying for myself doesn't work. And it's not, well, let's give God's way a try for a little while. It's being fully committed to the character of God that this has to be true. He would not lie to us. He would not deceive us. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil will bring death. Following God as God will bring life. You you can trust God with this. There is great consolation though, beloved. It's not all bad news here. Listen to this promise. This is after Jesus sends the rich young ruler away and Peter goes, man, we've given up everything. 
What are we going to get? Behold, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with the persecutions. It's not all bad, bad, nothing but bad. In fact, the persecutions are good. They purify us. They teach us what's truly right. They tell us, I must be really following Jesus because persecution's getting heavy. It puts my faith to the test. Well, I keep following Jesus. Is my faith real? But if all we got was the persecutions, that would be too much to bear. And God in His grace gives us A whole new family. Multitudes of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and and children. Spiritual brothers and sisters. Spiritual family. And homes. I don't think there's a person in this house that if I lost my home, you wouldn't invite me into your home. I've got hundreds of homes. You have hundreds of homes. Brothers and sisters and I know half of you over the age of 60 think I'm your son. I love that. I've got fathers and mothers galore here. When my parents come to visit and they worry about me, you know, you worry about your kids, they leave and they go, he's being taken care of. Some of you have even given me permission to call you mom. And I do. And you've given my children permission to call you grandma. Our kids have lots of moms and dads here. That's good because I can't keep track of them all the time. Isn't this wonderful, God's plan? And, And we meet together and we have something to talk about. Talking about the Lord and what the Lord's doing. and what What's He doing in your life? What's He doing in your life? Oh, wonderful things. Met a brother for the first time last night. There he is, David from Tulsa, Oklahoma. By way of Arkansas, or from Arkansas by way of Tulsa. Men's ministry Christmas party. I felt like we've known each other our whole lives. That's what the blessing is. Trust God. Yes, there might be some awkwardness with some family relationships. He'll help you walk through those. But don't don't deny Christ in order to to keep peace with blood relatives or at work or whatever sphere of influence. Trust God. Be winsome, be loving, be gracious, be humble, but stand firm for Jesus and see what happens. You know, people thought Jennifer and I were weird when we decided to homeschool. That was a personal decision, and that is weird for a public school teacher to homeschool. It was hard for her, a UCLA graduate, a a businesswoman, stay home with the kids. I thought my parents sent me to college so I wouldn't have to do that. But she listened to the Lord. Now, we were like kicking and screaming a lot of the way, but God is gracious, is he not? And he's patient with us.
And I know it made family feel uncomfortable. Well, why would you pull your kids out of school? Mine are still in. What does that say about us? I'm like, I'm not telling you what it says about you. I'm just saying the Lord put this on our heart not to have unbelievers teach our children during the most impressionable years of their lives. So we made that that choice. When we left for seminary, that made some other people anxious. Your wife is pregnant. She's due in a month. You're leaving your tenured job with benefits? I need training. I don't know how to handle God's word. He will take care of us. So we're going to sell our house. You're going to sell your house in California? You'll never get back into one. Six months later, the housing bubble burst. (laughs) So we were one of the few who weren't upside down in their house. Just God's grace in our life. Our faith was, was little, and he was doing big things to cultivate our faith. We were not giants of the faith. I think these big things were happening because we were not giants of the faith, and we needed obvious displays of his power and his mercy in our lives. But the, the key was that we were learning if you did things for the right reasons, then you could trust God with the rest, with the results. I knew I needed to go to seminary because I didn't know how to handle God's word. I did not ever want to step into a pulpit again and start spewing opinions. So whatever the cost was. And there were people at our church who were not happy with the seminary we picked and said, you're not invited back to this church after you graduate. And so sometimes persecution happens inside the church. And I think these are people who love God and were just misguided at the time, like we've all been misguided sometimes. Well, where are we going to go when we graduate? I don't know. God will find us a place. How about a place in California that two California natives had never heard of in our entire lives? Welcome to Tehachapi. And now we have so much family, we don't know what to do with all of you. It's a wonderful thing. Tonight's like Christmas party number four of 23, right? And it's all a different group of people, but each party glorious in its own way. And... The best news is is that all of this wonderful blessing we experience now is just a taste of the spiritual blessings laid up for us in the heavenly places. You thought you had a lot of spiritual family now. Wait till we're all around the throne and myriads upon myriads of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the martyrs have been vindicated. And we're all singing praises to the Lamb together, and we all get it, because we see in part now, but we'll see in full then. No more doubt, no more suffering, no more persecution, no more tears, no more pain. So live in that reality now, and don't be afraid to have to, quote-unquote, hate something that's of this world. 
Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will gain it, will preserve it. So I ask you today as you go home and discuss amongst yourselves at home, what is God calling you to hate today? It may not be a who. It may be a what. Where must you die in order to find new life? And we're going to need help figuring out what those things are because they're usually the last thing we really want to address in our lives. So trust your brothers and sisters, your fellow Christians. What is it in my life that I love too much? If it ain't Jesus and you can't love Jesus too much, then God gives you permission to hate it (laughs) in a certain way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we deserve to be hated and you chose to love us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Help us to know the right way to hate, the the right way to be loving to others who aren't loving to you yet. And to be winsome around them, but firm in our faith and our convictions. And trust you for the rest, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.